90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. Starting to get warm here in Colorado. Not that you know, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, we've actually uh, been a little bit cooler this week here. It's been surprising and kind of nice. Uh, yeah, that's what I heard. That's real weird. Um, yeah, we have all the heat, so, you know, it's been busy out in the field. Um, field camp's halfway over, so that's that's fun. We're all doing good so far. Yay! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and even a shout-out to a KU student that I saw in the field who said, oh, I love your podcast, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's always funny to, you know, meet people who kind of know you out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I, that pretty much summarizes geology. Oh, it's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> Meeting people that kind of know you out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, every year, man. Yep. Every year, I'll be like, if they don't know you, they know someone you know. So remember that, kids. It's a real small world in geology. So don't make people angry. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been up to? Are you back home finally for a little while? Uh, I'm here for about a week. Of course. <laughs> and then I've got some more equipment to install. But no, I'm back. Uh, been busy building up some circuit boards this week and doing some testing. So that's been a lot of fun. Awesome. That's awesome. How do you like not working in your garage? Is it fun? Or in, underneath your house in your basement? Yeah, having a separate space is really amazing. Yeah. Getting it set up <laughs> is a little less so. <laughs> um, and I may have to earlier than I planned on it, invest in air conditioning for the whole building. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah just re- like I, I had scotch brighted all the, the metal surfaces on my milling machine clean and coated it in WD-40 before I <laughs> left, and it is rusted under the WD-40. Oh, did you forget what humidity was like? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to have to do something to help get the humidity out of the air. And the the office and the electronics area have window units so they stay workable during the day Mm -hmm. Uh, the main shop part was 100 degrees the other day oh lovely so you can't really work out there in that for any extended period of time no so it sounds like you need to try to change your climate (laughs) yeah so uh great segue into the fact that maybe i should be investing in some geoengineering technologies exactly in my case Um, hvac but (laughs) right (laughs) there there are a lot more sophisticated (laughs) ones that we could use on a larger scale right um so i'm part of this geoengineering google group and it's just such a freaky thing i know we've talked about it on here before but i just wanted to revisit it in one of our summer shorts because it's just so weird and it's weird because of humans and do we even need to do geoengineering? Somebody's going to do it sometime. So who gets to do it? Who's in charge of it? But more importantly, what can you even do? And what is geoengineering in the first place? Right. And I will say that if you just go to some internet groups about geoengineering, you're going to find a lot of hokum. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which some of which we'll, we will talk about for sure. Yeah, <laughs> there, there are a fair amount of pretty wild ideas out there Mm -hmm. and of course you can't uh, discount any idea initially but you have to be able to prove it right so (laughs) (laughs) there are a few uh, pretty 
out there theories that have never been proven and have arguably been disproven, but are still widely thought about. Right. And I mean, so what are we talking about here is controlling basically the weather and therefore also the climate, which is kind of more of what we talk about when we talk about geoengineering now is turning around, you know, man-induced global warming. Right. So we're not really talking about doing things that I would call geotechnical engineering. So solving problems about soils or dams or anything like that. That's geotechnical engineering. Geoengineering is a much larger, more sweeping term where, yeah, we want to change how climate works. We want to modify the atmosphere. Yeah. And that's where you get really scary because who gets to do that? And who is the, you know, governing body that says what we should do? Because now we're really messing with Mother Nature, which, I mean, arguably we are anyway, but this seems real scary. Um, But some of this stuff has been around for a long time, like cloud seeding. And then some stuff is being talked about more now, like iron fertilization of the oceans. Right. And, you know, as you pointed out, if somebody does one of these things, it affects everyone. Right. Yeah. It's not like you're just affecting that one little space and then your experiment's over. Just like you said, there's some crazy stuff out there. So if people go rogue and start to do this on their own, that's really scary because, yeah, just like smoking, it affects everyone around you, not just you. So it's a big deal when you start to talk about weather. Well, and like every field, there's someone who says the solution is H-bombs. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, I would argue that, yes, detonating H-bombs everywhere would make a large difference in the fact that we wouldn't be here to worry about it. Right, that's true. true. Uh, But other than that, that's a terrible solution to most of these problems. (laughs) That's so true. But, I mean, detonating something is kind of how you do cloud seeding, which is one of those immediate sort of geoengineerings that affects weather that we've been doing for a long time. Yeah, so the idea of cloud seeding, we've talked before about uh, condensation nuclei, both in the cloud and in the rock sense. Oh, yeah, we have. That's true. When you make minerals, like ice. (laughs) Like ice or like these, uh, what were your thunder eggs? Oh, yeah. (laughs) From a few weeks ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's right. Little little siderite nodules. Yeah. Um, So that's, yeah, that's it. So when you're trying to change the weather, blow some stuff up in the air and see what happens, right? (laughs) Yeah, so you get more cloud condensation nuclei, so you get a lot more little tiny water droplets forming uh, that increases their probability of colliding and coalescing and becoming actual raindrops. So the idea is you get more of these things, you increase the probability that they become large enough to fall, and you get rain. But it also has other consequences. Right. Um, <laughs> this is actually kind of cool. And I never really thought about it until I started to teach paleoclimate. Um, the amount of cloud condensation nuclei actually determines how the size of your water droplets. And if you can have smaller water droplets that form clouds or larger water droplets that form clouds, that affects how you reflect the sun's rays. Right. So this changes what's called the albedo of the cloud. Right. Exactly. And so now we're not starting to affect just weather. Now we're talking climate because Earth's albedo and how it changes over time is a huge deal. 
You know, if you make, this is goes back to that snowball earth thing, where if you have 100% ice-covered earth, you know, the albedo's one, and you could never warm up, because you just reflect everything back, which is not good. Yeah, so if we cloud seed all of the time, it's going to be a problem. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Um, you could do the opposite, too, is that you can introduce all these guys and get stuff to rain over a certain place, right? So basically you can get rid of it, get rid of the rain quickly too to make skies clear, which is weird to think that you can do both things. So where you want rain, you could seed the clouds or seed the atmosphere and create clouds and then rain. Or if you've got some rain already going, you can throw some more CCN in there and get rid of all the precipitable water faster. Right, so make it rain weird. harder, more efficiently. Right, exactly. So you could do a lot with this. And these experiments have been going on for 100 years almost on this. And we'll talk about that um, here at the end of the show when we talk about some specific examples of this. But yeah, and this I mean, is I've really... heard of farmers like paying people in Cessnas to fly around and yeah, spray out silver iodide. Exactly. So uh, that's what I was going to say is that silver iodide is one of the things that um, they use to seed clouds. Uh, and you could also, some of the experiments have used dry ice, which is really interesting. Um, do you know why they use silver iodide? I don't. I don't either. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure what has been tried. Obviously, there's probably not a repository of things that have been shot into the air and tried to make I, rain with. You far underestimate the U.S. military. <laughs> okay, there's not a public repository. There is a Blue Book report somewhere on this, I'm oh, sure. Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, that is so <laughs> uh, I, would, I would guess that one of the properties of silver iodide that makes it ideal is it's probably got a very low surface energy, so it's easier for these, uh, or for moisture, to form a droplet on it uh, for something okay. that has a high surface energy. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So it's slippery. Okay. Right, and so you think about, and then you go, I had died versus I had died, and some things start coming back about what the surface energy of this might be, what yeah. its valence state is. Yep, charges. All right, gotcha. All right, so silver iodide likes water, basically. So there you go. So you spray the silver iodide out, and you get the desired effect. But that's, or maybe you get the desired effect. Yeah, <laughs> right. Let's, let's qualify that a little bit. But that's not the only way that we can try to modify our atmosphere and climate in bulk, right? Or the only way that we've even tried. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of ways, I'm sure. But this one's kind of a big deal, too, because now we're starting to talk about the fact that we can't get rid of, you know, we can't make CO2 go down fast enough now to counteract global warming at all. So stuff is warming up. There's nothing we can do about it so far as turning it around but we can halt how intense it's going to get so that's where we are now and one of those things that we're looking at is the carbon cycle and so this is there are short-term carbon cycle and long-term carbon cycle right so the best place to put carbon is in rocks like carbonate rocks right? yeah i mean that's where most of our carbon goes and we've talked about that before Right, exactly. Um, but the other place that the rest of it goes is the ocean. So next to rocks, the ocean is the second largest storage container of carbon. It stores about 40,000 gigatons of carbon, but it 
it doesn't do this in the water per se, it does it with these little plankton. And that's a huge part of this carbon cycle. So how can we geoengineer that, I well, think, is what people are saying. And, and before you go any further, I, I've seen these tens of thousands of gigaton numbers thrown around <laughs> a lot. Yeah, yeah. One, you can't conceptualize that anyway. No. So why do we not use the more abbreviated, easier to write and say unit of 40 teratons? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Or what would the I next one be? Would it be, uh, it'd be peta. So, or uh, petatons, 0 0.4 yeah. petatons. Oh, that sounds even scarier. Yeah. Also not easy to visualize. <laughs> I mean, none <laughs> of them are, right? No, no. And I think I think maybe they say this because it's only really the ocean and rocks that wind up in these thousands of gigatons. Yeah, I mean, 40,000 billion tons of carbon. <laughs> this is like when people say, you know, 2,000 million years ago. No, it's 2 billion years ago. Stop that. Right. And I also find it interesting that in the, you know, we're scientists, we use metric units. <laughs> we're still using gigatons oh, gigatons <laughs> though they may be so the true. metric ton which ton, is still T -O -N -N -E -S. terrible t-o-n-n yes t-o-n-n-e-s <laughs> yes still terrible <laughs> kilograms is it still terra terra ton terrible okay never mind i'll stop now <laughs> <laughs> yeah so forty thousand gigatons uh-huh uh, uh, okay, let's see. And we want to go to kilograms. So live math on the show is always. Oh, I know. I... <laughs> assuming they're imperial tons. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. So that would be 40.6 million kilograms. <laughs> That's a lot of carbon. That still makes more sense, though. It does. It really does. I agree. Or, I mean, well, there, you, you could you go, go to a, a gigagram, I guess. Ah, ah, ah. Please. I mean, or a megagram. There we go. 40 megagrams. 40.6 megagrams. I like that much better. I do, but it doesn't sound very impressive. Yeah. Well, anyway. Yeah. This sidetrack diversion aside against me ranting against the units that we use. <laughs> Well, I was just going to say that whenever I think of a gram, I always think of a paperclip. Like, that's a really good uh, visual. <laughs> yeah, it's still hard to visualize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so what were we doing to the oceans? <laughs> so we were trying to figure out a way that we can shove more CO2 into the oceans in these little phytoplankton. Right. So how so can we take CO2 out of the atmosphere and get it shoved away down here, which eventually it's going to get buried and become part of the rock anyway. Right, that's the whole point, but that's where we also run into problems, which we'll get to. But let's begin with phytoplankton. So what are these little guys? They're these weird little things that they do photosynthesis. So what are they taking in? CO2, putting out oxygen. Great. This is probably why life evolved and we're here in the first place. Where does the CO2 in the ocean come from? It's being mixed in from the atmosphere, right? Right. So this is all of the the wave and surface action on the ocean that seems simple but is very important and people spend their entire careers trying to model it effectively their entire careers that's actually one way that people have said you could see clouds is by boats just spewing seawater in the air hmm. yeah 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so back to this. <laughs> so these phytoplankton get the CO2 straight from the atmosphere, essentially, as it mixes into that top layer of the ocean. So they're these little chlorophyll, or these little photosynthesis guys. And they take large amounts of CO2 out right there at that interface, but you're limited by how many little phytoplankton there are. And so you've got these little phytoplankton, they're spewing out oxygen, which is great. And then you've got little zooplankton that come around, they eat the phytoplankton and then bigger things eat them, bigger things eat them. They take all that CO2 that was inside the phytoplankton and eventually it makes it down to the depths, like you said, John, and gets stored deep, deep, deep in the ocean where it eventually becomes a rock, which is a thousands, thousands of year cycle. Right. Yeah. So we call that the biological pump. Um, these critters set that up. They move that CO2 from the atmosphere to those deep levels of the ocean. But what can you do to get more phytoplankton? And this is where the iron part comes in. Yeah. Phytoplankton need their Wheaties. <laughs> exactly. And so if you start to seed the ocean with all this tiny, tiny, tiny iron, and then you can create big blooms of these phytoplankton, you can take more and more CO2 out, right? So more iron in the ocean means more carbon that gets stored. Or at least probably. that's what we think should be Yeah, happening. probably. And so I was, talking to, <laughs> I was talking a lot about this um, with my TA today in the field <laughs> because I was like, so what's... What's wrong with this? You can think of lots of things that'll be wrong with cloud seeding, you know, because you're affecting all these people. But I mean, we throw so many plastics in the ocean, you know, we don't think about the ocean. So what's wrong with just going out and dumping a bunch of iron and seeing what happens? Well, if it goes poorly, uh -huh. that's a big issue. Yeah. Uh, though... Granted, like you said, we're putting a lot of plastic. Maybe the solution is to, you know, put iron in all the stuff that ends up in the ocean anyway. Ooh, yeah, this is probably a good idea. But <laughs> it's going to be expensive. Right. It's expensive to do. And also, I mean, you know, look at our space program. We've gone private, essentially. Right. How do you make this work financially? What are you selling? So you're selling maybe carbon credits to offset businesses, right? So there's this really stinky, terrible business pumping all the CO2 in the air and like, oh, I'll just pay this iron fertilization guy to offset my carbon. How do we prove how much carbon you can sequester with iron fertilization when this is a long-term carbon cycle, thousands of years thing? How do we figure that out? Yeah, and models of it, especially since it's involving a biological process as well as a geological process, are going to be fuzzy. Oh, yeah, they are. The few that exist are ridiculously fuzzy. So, I mean, that's what we talked about. So how do you make this work financially? I don't know. I don't know that you can. Um, I'm sure eventually we probably could. But right now, it's not feasible at all. So there's a problem with this, even though it sounds like it'd be pretty good, because what could go... What is the downside if you throw this finite amount of iron in and you cause this algal bloom? Like, how could it go wrong? I I don't know. I don't know how it could go wrong. I don't either. I think it's more of a biological how could this go wrong than a geological mm -hmm. how could this go wrong. Because we won't know if it goes wrong geologically. We'll be 10 generations later. Right. Exactly. So, 
you know? And so then is that even worth it if it's going to take that much time, even though the best way to store carbon is to put it inside rocks? So I don't know. So this was an interesting one um, that these are kind of the two main things that get talked about a lot on that listserv that I'm on. So I thought that was interesting to talk about. But both of these things have been tried before a bunch of times. Yeah. So let's go on to some of the examples. Uh, as with many technological trials, I mentioned earlier, leave it to the U.S. military. Uh, our first trial that we're going to talk about happened during World War II. All right. Exactly. So uh, Bernard Vonnegut, it's Kurt Vonnegut's brother, he worked for GE as a physicist, and he was on this team with some Nobel Prize winners as well that was trying to figure out how to stop icing problems with planes. So icing is a big problem, and in wartime, you definitely want to figure out how to get rid of that so you're not killing your own guys because of icing, right? Right. I mean, this is why you have to sit and get de-iced. They have all kinds of uh, automatic de-icing strips and heaters and things on military aircraft. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So these guys were super smart guys, and as usually happens, the research goes in a different direction, (laughs) and it led to them researching cloud seeding. And so they had these big refrigerators, and they did all these experiments that create clouds and then tried to get the clouds to rain. Uh, They used dry ice a lot to seed the clouds, and that's how they got it to work sort of in their small little experimental thing and then they'd make silver iodide and they would do this by burning charcoal and silver together and basically spewing it into the air so these flames created water (laughs) yeah and these cloud chamber experiments are really cool and they're still done today yeah where you've got a relatively large chamber that you get to several kilometers worth of uh, atmospheric temperature difference lower the pressure and I've seen some of them that have pretty much just a, like a spray bottle, like a Windex bottle with a little motor pumping it to That's spray awesome. water into them. That's awesome. It's really interesting to me, too. It goes back to the whole the same physics because you just go the other direction and make them super pressurized. And then you've got a magma chamber experiment. Same thing. Same thing. Much different hardware. But yes. <laughs> Yeah, you can't do that with glass, but <laughs> but it's the same idea. Um, so they went through this, and I know I've talked about this um, before. It, there's a, a podcast about it, which we'll link in the show notes, too. There's a book that came out. So the big thing that came out of this Project Cirrus, I think was the name of their team, was they wound up trying to, and I quote, stop the evil effects of hurricanes. Yes. So yeah. this involved uh, explosives, as as all military yeah. projects do, uh, right. and lots of exactly. dry ice. Right. So they flew over this hurricane, and they dropped this big bomb of dry ice into it, essentially. And the hurricane changed course shortly afterwards. Hmm. <laughs> exactly. I'd actually written into the notes and it seems like I deleted it, but yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I think I saw a really bad movie on sci-fi about this once. (laughs) I love that they were like, yeah, success. I mean, they had meteorologists working for them. I don't know. I don't know, man. Well, I mean, you you need to demonstrate this a number of times. And it's like when people talk about earthquake statistics and there are those that would argue that 
Well, you need an infinite number of realizations of the same earthquake, therefore an infinite number of Earths for those statistics to make sense, because otherwise these are not independent events. Uh, it's the same way with weather phenomena. Like You would need to have two versions of this hurricane, one that you dropped the dry yeah, ice bomb right. and one that you didn't. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. But it was whatever. tried. Uh, this is it sort of the, you know, the era of atomic cowboys and uh, we can we can do anything. Exactly. And so they claim that this worked, but, you know, there you go. But cloud seeding, like I said, it does work. Um, I don't know if you can ever stop the evil effects of hurricanes. It seems like that would be a climate manipulation that could also turn out very badly. <laughs> right. I mean, we've talked about before, they're heat pumps and they're moving heat yeah. from low latitudes to high latitudes. And if you stop them, something else will. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So then you've got a hypercane and then you've got a, you know, day after tomorrow scenario. And nobody <laughs> wants that. <laughs> but there have been successful, other successful cloud seedings, a lot actually. Um, one that is in the public's mind, I think, that I remembered was the Beijing Olympics. They did cloud seeding before the opening ceremonies, right? So it wouldn't rain. Right, so this is that second scenario you were talking about where there are clouds and you make them rain out as soon as they possibly can. Right, so you do that so it's not around this specific area, so this huge open-air stadium, and there you go. I, I don't know if they did it, too, to clear off some of the pollution. I don't know about that. Maybe that's something I made up, but rain would definitely do that, too. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that was done. But, you know, I talked about farmers hiring people in Cessnas to do this. Uh, even earlier than that, back in the Dust Bowl, out in the panhandle, uh, you could hire a rainmaker who would shoot sticks of dynamite up into the air. Right. <laughs> uh, I love this because, you know, no one was making money here in the in the Dust Bowl because there were no crops or anything like that, except for this guy who came out and he shot dynamite into the air. And the next morning it snowed. And hmm. so it... <laughs> Hmm. And even more hmm to lend credence to him. I'm sure he got a lot of work after this. It was the first week of May. Yeah. So, you know, we don't get snow in the panhandle in the first week of May very often. No, but it's definitely sure. possible. Look, I'm sure he did it with his dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. Um, so this cloud seeding business... It's hard to control, you know, anybody with some charcoal and silver can set it on fire and start seeding clouds and it changes the weather patterns around you. And if you do it enough, it's going to change the climate. So that's really scary. But that's not the only rogue example of geoengineering because this whole seeding of iron in the ocean, there was some guy that did this too. Yeah, so in 2012, a gentleman dropped 100 tons just plain tons yeah. <laughs> uh, of iron into the ocean uh, off Western Canada. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was his purpose was to do that same thing that we just talked about, encourage plankton growth, which would help sequester CO2. And the problem was like, he's not a scientist and he misrepresented his, I use air quotes around the word experiment, to a lot of people, and he actually talked Noah into letting him deploy buoys all around there to figure out, you know, temperature and humidity and to 
monitor this area that he dumped all this iron. Um, because I love this word too, or these words. Noah uses vessels of opportunity to employ their buoys, deploy their buoys. Right. And so that's what he sold himself as. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, is great. He's trying to monitor the experiment, I guess. Yeah, and sold it to some other folks as a salmon restoration project. Uh-huh, yeah. So he got a lot of the First Nations tribes of Canada to give him money because he said he was going to help bring the salmon back and broke two international laws in doing so and dumping all this stuff. And, yeah, that's really scary. Just some dude went out in the ocean, dumped all this iron. And, I mean, there hasn't been a lot of backlash about it but also he can't really prove that it fixed anything either so and also really a hundred tons in the scheme of influxes to the ocean is nothing right exactly exactly so what's the what's the outcome of all that anyway you know right yeah so these are just two sort of examples of geoengineering there's a lot of other crazy stuff that's going on um there are some countries that are basically burning huge pots of things in order to cloud seed so not only are they adding all this extra stuff into the atmosphere that's supposed to turn into cloud condensation nuclei you know they're burning things so you're adding a lot of other terrible gases up there as well so there's all kinds of scary things in the works and i think that in an effort to get negative carbon now, geoengineering is the only way to go, and we're just going to hear more and more about it. I agree, but we're going to have to do some more responsible work on this, and internationally responsible work. We can't have one nation that just says, I'm going to go do this. It's not going to happen. It's too large of a problem. Right, and that's what we have now, and so that's really scary. So while this is disturbing... It will help if people become aware of what's going on, and it's going to be even more important science education across all levels of society and internationally so we can all come to a consensus on this together. Absolutely. And I will link in the show notes and encourage you to go watch uh, Bill Nye's recent about minute and a half video on the current climate crisis. Uh, I will warn you that it does use explicit language. That's the best kind of language. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, with that, John, I think that we should talk about, we've talked about reaching out to people internationally and all of us coming together. Maybe we need to do some cross-species reaching out, too. And we're going to do just that on this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) I mean, this was a fun paper, but it was kind of serious, too. It's an Ig Nobel winner. But it was kind of cool to read. Spontaneous cross-species imitation in interactions between chimpanzees and zoo visitors by person (laughs) at all. Uh, Yeah, so it's exactly what it sounds like. Somebody sat there and watched chimpanzees make faces and watched humans make faces and saw what happened. (laughs) And, you know, you might say, well, I'm going to do whatever motion and see if the chimpanzee will mimic it. And what they actually found out was really, it's about 50-50 whether we make the motion, they mimic it, or they make the motion, and we mimic it. Oh, 
which I think is great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mimicking and imitation is a huge thing. If you've ever raised a child or been around a child for any Mm. length of time, you understand that, you know, human toddlers do this all the time. And there is a large range of, you know, imitation and mimicry that neither John or I probably understand. (laughs) It's very nuanced, but in general, this is a really cool study and it makes it actually pretty easy to understand that. But mimicry and imitation is a very important thing for early human socialization. And there's been some research that say that apes in particular don't really do this. And I think this study says, well, no, they actually do. Right. And it's also a great way to pass down knowledge, even if it is in sort of the the cargo cult fashion. You don't know why you're doing something, but you know if you do this thing, you can get food and survive. Right. And then later on, when you get more more folds in your brain as you're becoming an adult, you start understanding why, not just blindly repeating the steps. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, I mean, these researchers set out with these very specific set of research questions about this you know can we do this cross-species imitation who does it is it just humans imitating these guys or do they imitate us too um does it serve a purpose you know why why do either one of us do it how good do we do it how impressive is the imitation or is it a partial imitation is it a full imitation um and then like who does it too and which I thought was one of the more interesting outcomes of this study as well is, you know, adult, juvenile, who, who are the ones that are doing these imitations and doing it reciprocally. Right. And they also looked at, do you have to be close to somebody to do it? Right. Or, you know, is looking at somebody from six meters away the same as looking at them from on the other side of a one inch piece of glass? Right. And so there's a lot of stuff that came out of this. That was a lot of research questions and a lot of uh, results from it. But I really love the data collection because it was really simple. Yeah, a pen and paper. Right. Because <laughs> you can't video people without their permission, right? And you can't have a big camera on the research subjects without people, these chimpanzees, without people saying, oh, what's that for? And then maybe acting differently. So, yeah, they literally had the people that were familiar with the chimpanzees set in the area where people view them at the zoo in Sweden and wrote stuff down. Well, and you said you can't videotape. I would say you can't do that in most places in the world. Here, no problem. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's true. Uh, Sweden. Sweden's a little more, you know, a little better than we are. Right. For example, if you go to Germany and you're videoing something, uh, before you could post that on YouTube, you know, like your travel log or whatever, uh, you should have the consent of every person in that video or they have to be blocked out. Right. Um, besides the consent laws, I think this is better because there's nobody hamming it up for the video no matter what. Right. And I think that's kind of cool. You've just got some observer over there, so you're not really messing with how the day-to-day interactions at this chimpanzee visitor center would be well and who's going to think about somebody sitting in the corner writing in a notebook they're not thinking they're watching to see what dumb things i do yeah (laughs) writing them down and then it's going to be put in a paper and talked about on a podcast i mean from now on you'll think about that right (laughs) (laughs) um this is really cool i just 
I just thought that was really simple. And these imitations and everything, man, there was a bunch of stuff. Like 52 hours, I believe, of observation. And they recorded 3,794 observations in that. And like you said, they were about half and half who was initiating the action. Right. And so looking at the actions that were mimicked here. Uh, so pressing lips to the window, uh, pressing window with hand, knocking window with hand, clapping hand, stroking the window, knocking head with hand. That's a classic. Uh, yeah, that was pretty good. Hitting window with hand, uh, head bobbing. Uh, let's see. Quick approach, yawning, self-hugging. Thumb sucking. <laughs> resting head on hand, you know, posing the classic selfie pose. Oh, exactly. Only those first few were the ones that were, those were all, you know, in actions initiated by visitors. Only those first few were the ones that were initiated by the chimpanzees, but they still had an impressive number that were initiated by chimpanzees, I thought. Yeah. And then the last one, I am, I am unsure of what this means, but there are 13... 13- <laughs> Partial imitations by visitors of knocking window with lips. Okay, so I, I, well, okay, how I explained this to myself was like coming in quickly to kiss. And so you don't really just press your lips up to it, but it's like a quick or something like that. That's the only thing I could come up with what knocking the window with lips meant. That's the only one I can come up with that doesn't end with a trip to the dentist. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so these there was a wide variety of things that were um, that were initiated. And <laughs> I do love that the body scratching, <laughs> self-hugging, and body picking were all initiated only by the humans. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> those sound like something that an animal would do, right? But no, no, those were human initiated. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And so the point was to see who initiated it. Was it a reciprocal exchange? Um, Who was doing it, right? They had specific chimpanzees. Because there's only, I mean, they had hundreds of visitors, but there were five chimpanzees, um, an adult female, adult male. Oh, what's the S? Sub-adult females, two sub-adult females and one juvenile female. Right. And they also had a time window on this. So, for example, if in the last three minutes a chimpanzee had, you know, waved, let's say, then that was considered imitation of the previous thing, not a actual imitation if somebody else had given them that stimulus. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there's a little um, bit and- of a time window. It's not really exact, right? Right, yeah, because you're just studying organic interactions. Um, and just like you said, too, there are two different places they did this because there was a big outdoor area where the chimps could be, but they have also an indoor area so the chimps can come inside and you're only separated by this small piece of glass, which one of the things that the outcome of that, which I thought was interesting, is that human toddlers didn't really imitate or try to do actions when they were observing them outside but when they were observing them face to face they did it much more when the chimps and the toddlers were inside that, that sort of makes sense to me like it's much less like oh, looking yeah. at a picture or watching a movie uh-huh yeah it i thought that was really cool that that was actually statistically valid yeah on that 
Mm-hmm. So proximity does make a difference, and six meters is plenty. So next time your kid is playing the mimic game, <laughs> uh, you can either one remember this is important to their development, or two just back up. <laughs> yep, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, another outcome that I thought was cool is that there was very specifically the adult male chimpanzee overwhelmingly was the one that would mimic or initiate mimicking actions both inside and outside. Well, and, you know, maybe that's surprising on some level because you expect the the younger chimpanzees who are still trying to pick up behaviors, but the adult has a well-developed brain mm-hmm. and is trying to actively learn new things. They actually, didn't they even say in here that maybe he was a gifted individual as right. well? So maybe there's that. But I love that the one that didn't interact at all was essentially the teenager. <laughs> so there were two sub-adult females, but one of them was only like nine years old, so not very old, and one of them was like 14 or something. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like She was the teenager sitting in the corner, not going to have anything to do with anybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so that shouldn't be surprising to anyone either. Yeah, there was something about, you know, certain artists some music playing i don't i can't give a relevant artist for this decade of <laughs> teenage angst music right exactly that's kind of how i imagined it um but this was cool and so this is one of they said the first study to systematically investigate this imitation and initiation by chimpanzees and humans in this type of setting you know non-laboratory setting um and that, yeah, it works on both accounts. Yeah. So they said in the end that they hope this will encourage some more studies like this where we can gain some more knowledge because this is really the first of its kind that did this intensive detail. Um, and they hope it will lead to more work. So if you have a study on mimicking action by your children or chimpanzees, we would love to see your data compared to this. Was it head scratching? Was it head and hands? Was it body picking? <laughs> Let us know. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? <laughs> you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman, at Shannon Doolin. Together we're at Don't Panic Geo. In the Slack chat room, the software underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters for help keeping us going. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.